Now, this morning we want to, uh, in our teaching time together, explore a question that has fascinated people since the dawn of humanity, and that is the question, what is the soul? If I were to ask you to explain precisely what the soul means, what the word soul means, what would you say? It's a word we use all the time, actually, but it's a little bit slippery when you start to try and define it. When I was a little kid, we would pray a prayer each night. Maybe you did. And it says, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I had no idea what that meant. I'm not even sure. I still quite understand what that prayer is asking. Then this last week, I was at Starbucks, which would be of no surprise to those who know me well, and I noticed on their new beverage sleeves at Starbucks that they were inviting me to consider my soul. They asked me to steep my soul, which seemed to have something to do with Oprah and her new line of teas that they're selling at Starbucks. But the concept of soul is now actually a marketable concept. It's used to sell all kinds of stuff to us. I'm not sure how that works, but including vehicles, I mean, can a car be soulful? I'm not sure what that means. If it can, I'm not sure that helps us answer the question of what the soul is. But as humans, we can't seem to talk about music or art without talking about it and in the language of the soul, how something particularly touches our soul or is moving in some way. People in literature and in movies are forever doing things like selling their soul. Most often it's to the devil. Remember the episode of The Simpsons where Homer sells his soul? What does he sell it for? A donut. It becomes his soul donut. And he puts it in the fridge with a little sign on it that says, soul donut, do not eat. Can the soul really be bought or sold? At what price? To whom? By whom? The confusion about the language of soul doesn't stop us from using the language of soul all the time. Much to Pastor Keith's dislike, Derek Jeter has been called the soul of the Yankees. I don't know how it happens. Can a sports team have a soul? What's happened to ours this season then? People say things like, oh, the eyes are the window to the soul. What do they mean by that? Or I found my soulmate. Belief in the soul is incredibly pervasive. Researchers and philosophers tell us that most people in most every culture and most every age and most ages and places have believed that human beings have a soul, some kind of soul. How do you know if you have a soul? Vancouver-based writer and artist Douglas Copeland expressed a profound thought when he penned these words. I don't deserve a soul, yet I still have one. I know because it hurts. What is the soul? Does it have to hurt in order for you to know that you have one? Even if we can't define it very precisely, all of us likely have some desire or inclination to want a healthy soul. Here at Jericho Ridge this spring, we're exploring a teaching series called Unintentional. And the theme of the series is we're looking at areas in our lives where we want to grow in purpose and in intentionality and in focus. 
and not become just mechanized or robotic automatons. We want to actually be more intentional in certain areas of our lives. And so this morning we're going to talk about what does it mean to be intentional about our souls and caring for your soul, which is in many ways the most important part of you. I think the challenge is that if we can't define it very accurately or with any level of precision, how do we know how to care for it in any meaningful way? So where would we turn for some guidance on defining and being more intentional about understanding what our soul is and then how to care for it? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the soul. In fact, some would say that one of the most important words in the Bible is the word soul. So what does the Bible say actually to us about souls? Well, the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, we're actually told that God breathed into each person and created each individual that he made with a soul. Genesis 2 verse 7 said, After he created the world, everything in it, the Lord God formed humanity, formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into him, and man became a living soul. The soul, whatever else it is, is that God-initiated, God-breathed part, that eternal part of every human being who's ever lived and ever will live. And as such, the soul is that deepest expression of our personhood. Until God breathed it into existence, we weren't complete. The Bible teaches, though, that the soul is a distinct part of our composition as human beings. It's distinct from our heart. It's distinct from our spirit. It's distinct from our mind. It's distinct from our body. Because of its centrality to who we are, we're repeatedly instructed in the Bible to love God with our soul. In Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, nine times, just in one book, that instruction appears. Here it is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. What does it mean to love God with your soul? Well, as we read on through the scriptures, we learn a lot about the condition of our souls, things that can happen to our souls. We read, for example, in the book of Job about an individual who goes through incredible hardship in his life, incredible pain and suffering. And in the midst of his incredible agony and suffering, Job speaks not just about his physical body being in pain, but he talks about his soul being jaded and hardened toward God and others as a result of his experiences. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 20, we learn our soul can sink into despair or anguish. In Psalms, which is a great soulful book, in Psalm chapter 31, verse 9, it says that the soul can actually wither. It can shrink. It can lose some capacity that it had. In Proverbs chapter 22, the writer warns us that our souls can be endangered or ensnared. A trap can be set for our souls that we can fall into. 
In the New Testament, God is named not only as the creator of our souls, but also in 1 Peter 2.25, the guardian, the one who watches and cares for our souls. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're told that pastors and those in spiritual leadership, that their primary job description is to watch over and help care for people's souls. Historically, that's what the name that was given to those in the clergy was curates. A curate is someone who's responsible for things of the soul. So clearly the Bible sees the soul as quite central to who we are as human beings. And sometimes in the Bible, though, the words soul and spirit get used interchangeably. Sometimes the Bible talks about the heart in language that's similar to the soul. And when it uses it interchangeably, it gets a little bit confusing for us sometimes. There are distinctions. For example, in Hebrews 4.12, we're told that God's words, when they enter our lives, they divide even the soul and the spirit. So sometimes, though the Bible can help us define the soul, sometimes I think the Bible confuses us a little bit too about what we actually mean when we use the language of soul. So we come back again to the question of where we started. What is the soul? If we're going to care for it well, we need to understand it well. Uh, Dallas Willard is one of my favorite authors. He's a longtime professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. Uh, he died about this time last year. And in one of his books, he gives a helpful image, I think, and definition for the soul. And he talks about it in terms of the operating system for our lives. He says this, what is running your life at any given moment is, is your soul. It's not your external circumstances. It's not your thoughts. It's not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, that integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimension of the self. The soul is the very life center of the human being. The soul is the operating system for our lives, which is kind of, that's all fancy philosopher speak about stuff. The notion of the soul as an operating system might be a little more helpful because it causes us to see the soul's role in integration between the different aspects of our personhood, our thoughts, our intentions, our feelings, how we process our circumstances, all of those things ultimately are the work of the soul. Aristotle says the soul never thinks without a picture, and so Willard goes on to draw this out as a series of concentric circles, which is maybe a little bit more helpful for us. So he starts in the middle and says, you know, our will forms the center of who we are as people. And so if we picture it, the will is that is our intentions. And then immediately out from our will is our mind. Our mind is our thoughts, our feelings, our values, our conscience, the way that we process things in life. And then our physical body as well. Language, our actions, all of those things. But our soul is that which wraps around all of those things and exerts a controlling influence on those things, but is also influenced by those things. 
There's an interdynamic relationship there between our will, our mind, our body, and our souls. And that's why the soul really is the operating system in our lives and is the most important part of who we are. Because when there's harmony, when there's integration between these different parts of our lives, of who I am, I'm healthy as a person. When there's disintegration or disharmony between these things, I'm not operating as I am designed to operate. I'm not a fully healthy person. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus gives us what is perhaps the most insightful but brief assessment of our souls and our responsibility to care for the most important part of who we are. Jesus is speaking to people in Mark 8 about his death. And when you begin to move towards or, or think about your own mortality and the cessation of your physical existence, oftentimes that's where the language of soul begins to surface very prominently. And he begins to talk about it, and in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus places an incredibly high value on the soul as the most important part. But it's interesting to think about what Jesus is saying here. John Ortberg, in his most recent book, Soul Keeping, relates a conversation that he had about Mark chapter 8 with Dallas Willard. And Ortberg says it this way. When he was talking to Willard, he suggested that, I always thought that this verse meant that in the long run, it wouldn't do you any good to acquire a lot of money, have a lot of sex and other pleasures if you ended up going to hell in the end. When I mentioned this to Dallas, he gently corrected me and he said, no, 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 that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not talking here about people going to hell. Jesus is talking about a diagnosis, not a destination. For the ruined soul, which is what Jesus is addressing here, the will, the mind, the body are disintegrated, disconnected from God, and living at odds in the world with the way in which God made life to operate and the universe to run. And so even if you were able to acquire the whole world, which is the line in one of the songs that we sang earlier this morning, if I could offer the whole of the created order, that even would be a present far too small. If you could acquire and attain somehow, though it's impossible to do, if you could obtain success in every single area of your life in a demonstrable way, if you could even amass the entirety of the whole world, that would not produce satisfaction, let alone meaning and goodness for your soul. Because once you have lost your soul, if you lose your soul, it means that you no longer have a healthy operating system, a healthy center that organizes and guides your life. 
You're like a car without a steering wheel. It doesn't matter how fast you're going or how fast you can go because you are a crash waiting to happen. I found that language, that language profoundly helpful. Jesus is talking here about a diagnosis of our souls, not ultimately a destination. Now, if a soul continues in a state of such disintegration and disconnection from God and from others, ultimately a destination will be determined. But Jesus is saying and asking his hearers, and by extension you and I, to address the condition of our lives and to use the right metric by which to do so. He's saying, what is the primary assessment for you in your life? What is the most important part of you? What is a standard that you would have as a primary assessment point for the condition of your soul if nothing is worth more than your soul? How do you know if your soul is being lost or if it's in a right and integrated relationship with God? And others. The Quakers, a religious movement that's produced many contemplative writers and thinkers over the past couple of centuries, always asked each other when they got together, uh, let's say this was a Quaker gathering and they had coffee and connection time, they would not say, how are you doing? They would say, friend, how is it with your soul? That'd be the first question that would be out of their mouths. And they would expect actually an answer, not Oh, pretty good. How's your soul? <laughs> How is it with your soul? They understood actually the need for conversation around diagnosing the condition of our soul. Try it at Coffee and Connection time next week. See what responses you get. What they're driving at, though, is that sometimes all of the other things that we talk about and spend a lot of time assessing and thinking, they actually maybe aren't the best measuring sticks for doing soul work because you can have a lot of money and have a very sick and anemic soul. You can have very little money and have a sick soul. You can have a very happy and successful from an outward perspective family life and your soul can be profoundly unwell. You can actually have a very chaotic and disruptive family life and your soul can actually be in a state of relative health. You can have a very fit body and a sharp mind and have a soul that's off kilter. But if nothing is more valuable than or worth more than your soul, how do we go about caring for the most precious part of who we are? Because the challenge is, when you think about other areas of our lives, they come with a bit of a dashboard or some indicators that might help us understand how we're doing in different systems. So for example, my physical body tells me when I am overtired or unhealthy or hungry. And I know what the remedy is for all of these things. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to go for a run. I know how to feed and stimulate my mind and keep my intellectual world sharp and well-fed. But when it comes to the soul, it's a little bit harder to care for. What does your soul need? And how do you know that you need it? How would you know if your soul was becoming increasingly lost? Ortberg suggests in his book, Soul Keeping, that you are only able to live in a way that really helps and loves others when your soul feels and knows its worth. 
Often we pay far more attention to our work or our bodies or our finances than to our souls. But the soul is that which we take into eternity. And attending to the soul does not mean that we neglect those things or those practices like career or health, but the soul lives really at the center of them all. So it means that we would want to not simply ask things like, how can I acquire more money? Instead, we would want to ask the question of, how would my involvement in the practice of acquiring more money, what mark or impact could that potentially leave on my soul? How would I, the way I go about spending my time, positively or negatively, how would that mark my soul, but also the souls of those around me? What does our soul need in order not only to not be lost, but to thrive and be healthy? Well, the Bible gives us some good diagnostic indicators of what our souls need in order to be healthy. So let's get intentional as we look at a couple of those examples. Before we look at these questions, they're diagnostic questions, sometimes when we're in this sort of a setting, you can make the mistake of thinking, okay, well, there's four questions. I need to write all of them down. I should think carefully about all four of them. I don't want you to do that. I want you to just maybe pick out one question that resonates with you in some way and think about the action items that we're going to talk about as a result of those questions. And so just pick one. One description you think aligns with how your soul is doing these days. One activity that you might want to choose to engage in that if you should so choose, could produce a deeper level of soul health. So don't write all of them down, just, just one action point for you, all right? So in terms of diagnostic question, Jesus makes a statement. Let's start with his statement in Mark 8.35. And he says this, if you try and hang on to your life, you will lose it, Mark 8.35. What is Jesus saying there? What's he driving well, the core, I think, of what Jesus is saying is that because the soul was created by God to be vitally connected with him, that this is the first and most enduring need that we as human beings will ever have, connection with God. And so the first soul diagnostic question is to ask, is my soul vitally connected with God? The Bible uses all kinds of language to help us understand and answer that question. It uses language like God being an anchor for our souls or being in relationship with the guardian or the shepherd of our souls, that eternal part of us. In 1 Peter 1.9, it says, Though you do not see God now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy, and the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. The reason Peter uses that language is because your soul will never be satisfied until that deepest and first and primary longing is satisfied by being connected with the one who made it. The deepest thirst of our souls, if we quiet the rest of our lives down to pay attention to it as human beings, is to be in vital connection with the one who made us. And so here's the action point. If your soul is distant from or not connected with God, maybe today is your day to begin to resolve that disconnect. Maybe for you, you've actually never considered that question before. 
and you've gone through your life with this sense of, of ache and desire for purpose and for meaning and for hope and for joy and for some of the other things that you see reflected in the lives of others. But you've never experienced those things. And maybe for you today is the day when you actually want to take that step and say, I actually want to trust God with the keeping of my soul. I want to exercise faith and come into a fresh and vitalized relationship with my creator. In a few minutes, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to pray that prayer, and then I want you to come at the, before you leave today and talk to me or talk to someone who came, you came with and express to them your desire to take some steps in that direction here today. Maybe for you, you've done that. You've said, yeah, I've come to a place of, of trust. I prayed a prayer, whatever that was supposed to mean. But your soul feels distant or not connected in a vital way with God. Maybe some of the other diagnostic questions will help. The second question that speaks to the reality that as we go through life, our souls can get beat up by the circumstances that come into our lives. And for some of you here today, that describes you. And that maybe has created some of that distance between you and God. Your soul today is in a state of pain and distress. Things have happened in your life that are hard, that are happening in your life that are hard. They've caused you to question God and his care for you. This is a normal part of the human experience. It's given powerful and soulful voice in so many places in the scripture. We've looked at some of them in the Old Testament as we've gone through some of our teaching in the prophetic books and in Psalms over the course of this season here at Jericho. Just one example from Psalm 13. The writer cries out to God and says, How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? Turn to me, God. Answer me, O Lord, my God. Some of you are walking through deep waters and your soul is in pain and distress. It's interesting, isn't it, that the universal sign for distress or signal for distress is SOS, save our souls. Maybe you need a lifeline here today. We're going to be moving into a time of response prayer when we celebrate communion together. I want to invite you to come and I want to have one of our prayer team pray with you. Deb Jarvis and Meg or Curtis and myself and others will be available besides just before the communion tables if you'd like to pray with someone and we'd be privileged to stand with you in this time and lift up your soul and the circumstances of your life to the one who cares, to the Father who knows and who sees. Because the dark night of the soul that you're enduring God longs to give you strength and comfort in the midst of it. And so maybe for you, if your soul is in pain and distress, the action point is really simple this morning. Just come for prayer. That might be a big step for you. You might have thought about it for months and months and months. I know my request is too little. My story, there's other people going through deeper waters. Just come. We would love to pray with you this morning. That brings us to the third diagnostic question. Sometimes you're not in the midst of a crisis, but over time you feel that your heart has grown hard and distant in some way and tired. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, one of the most prolific promises that comes to us through the scriptures is the promise of rest for weary souls. And Jesus says it this way, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion 
come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your soul. I'll show you how to take a walk. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Maybe your soul needs some recovery time. It's weary and tired. Maybe your calendar is not ordered to serve your soul well. You might need to create some calendar white space in your life to allow for some soul white space, some spiritual white space. It doesn't have to be some massive week-long spiritual retreat and monastery somewhere. For me, I find actually my soul is restored and refreshed when I get out on the water in my kayak, even for a couple of hours. Or go for a run. Whatever that looks like for you, going out for a walk in nature. What restores your soul? For some of you, you've lost the answer to that question. And you need to recover that if you're going to allow your soul to recover from being weary and tired. Maybe for some of you, your soul's in a good place. You know what it feels, though, like to slip into soul weariness. And you can see it in some around you. Maybe this morning, your action point is just to exercise care for those around you who you see as having a weary soul. Help guard the souls of your kids if you're a parent or the spiritual health of your friends. We're going to talk more about that next weekend when we explore spiritual friendships. The last question of diagnosis is, is your soul being well-fed and nourished? What are you feeding your soul these days? Psalm 63 says, God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. And so I will praise you as long as I live. Sometimes we think about that as being an overflow of a full soul. This text also invites us to consider it as a source of replenishment for a soul, a source of feeding and nourishment for our souls, praising and worshiping God. Seeking out the right kinds of input. Every human soul is hungry and needs to be well fed. As such, the soul grows anemic when you don't Seek out the right kinds of inputs. What are you putting into your soul? Are you making it a priority to hear from God in his word? We launched our life journaling test groups over the course of this month. And experiment with it. There's still one week left. You can still jump in and have some fun with that. Maybe make time for Christian community. Life groups, men's retreat, her table, Sunday mornings, whatever it is. Here at Jericho Ridge, one of the things that we do is provide opportunities for your soul to be well-nourished. But you have to take us up on the opportunities that we provide if you need spiritual nourishment. Team's going to come and we're going to move into a time of communion and response. Throughout the history of Christianity, the communion table has been understood as a place of nourishment for our souls. It's representative because it's not a full meal, right? Our physical bodies are not fueled by it for the day's ahead by any stretch of the imagination, but it is food for our souls. And the reason it's food for our souls is because it points us back to the place, the only true source of nourishment that our soul can have, a relationship with God. And so if you're not in a right relationship with God and with other people, we would just respectfully ask this morning that you refrain from participating in the communion table. This is for people who are members of God's family, not just here at Jericho Ridge, but in any place.
We don't police the table, but we do remind you that coming to the table, uh, we would invite you to come with a clean heart and ask God to search your soul and see if there's any barriers that would be there for participating in that. At Jericho, our practice is for you then to be served and then to take the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for you, and the cup, which represents his blood shed for you, back to your seat. And I invite you as this morning to reflect on the condition of your soul. Find a place here of deep and sustaining healing and nourishment for the road ahead. Let's pray together and the team will lead us in worship in song as we center our souls again on God and his amazing love for us today. Jesus, we're grateful that as our Father, as our Creator, as the one who made us, you know everything about the condition of each of our souls in this place today. And we thank you that you invite us to come to your table to find nourishment, to find hope again, to find replenishment for tired and weary souls. We receive it, Father. For those who have never opened that deepest part of their lives to trust you, you would do it just by saying, God, I acknowledge you as the leader and forgiver of my life and my soul, the captain of my soul. I'm not the captain of my soul. I've tried that. That has not worked. I will invite you today to take charge of my heart, of my life, of every part of who I am. I want to learn to walk that journey with you. And so God, each of us today wants to come. I pray that each of us would want to come to that place of surrender and acknowledgement of our need for you at the deepest level and our need to care for our souls. And so, Father, we uh, use whatever words that we can humbly to speak that out in response, in worship to you. And we declare that you are the one who nourishes and feeds our souls, gifts us with repentance and rest as we come to you again in this place today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.